to the tactile world. This is the latest episode in a, an ongoing study of the care economy, uh, how people receive care, how care is delivered, what care work is, and how care, caring, uh, reproductive labor, affective labor fit in the contemporary post-industrial economy that we all live in. Um, we are talking with nurses and teachers and therapists, and we're actually going to be talking to people in a wide range of fields, um, sort of expanding what the idea of care is, maybe. Today we have a really wonderful conversation with Thomas Lawrence Long. This is a guy who's um, had a real long journey uh, and fascinating. Um, he used to be a priest. Uh, he got a PhD in English and wrote a book called AIDS and American Apocalypticism, got it right that time, The Cultural Semiotics of an Epidemic, which was published by SUNY Press in 2005, also the co-author of a book called Writing in Nursing, A Brief Guide, which was published by Oxford in 2017. How Tom came to this career is a really interesting story. This is a perfect example of someone uh, from the humanities uh, inventing their own career, like literally creating their own job and making their own story, creating something that wasn't there before. And it's really interesting. Um, he's not only you know a, a, a literary scholar, a historian, um, but also an advocate for nursing research and someone really pushing the boundaries in, uh, in, in, in this field. So we are going to talk with him. It's, it is a long interview. No pun intended. I know it's sorry. It's Tom Lawrence Long. But this is oral history. If you're here for it, you're here for it. If you're not, you're not. You don't have to listen to the whole thing. But I think Tom has a lot that's interesting to say. So I really <laughs> extremely grateful that we get to do this. So here is our interview with Thomas Lawrence Long of the University of Connecticut. Thomas Lawrence Long, but known to my friends and family as Tom. I'm a professor in the University of Connecticut's School of Nursing. Uh, during this conversation, I may be referring to it by the phrase or by the word Yukon, uh, which is spelled U-C-O-N-N -N, and not spelled Y-U-K-O-N. <laughs> uh, friend of mine who uh, recruited me here uh, back in 2007, um, when he first told me he was going to be moving from uh, University of Maryland to Yukon, I thought, oh my God, you guys are going uh, uh, all the way to Alaska. It's crazy. <laughs> uh, but no, Yukon is the University of Connecticut. Now, I am not a nurse. Um, I am a medical uh, humanities uh, or, or health humanities scholar. I'm also the curator of the Josephine A. Dolan Nursing History Collection at the University of Connecticut School of Nursing, and that's a collection of artifacts, uh, including perhaps the world's largest collection of bed pans, but you didn't know that, and uh, it's quite a distinction. And uh, also a considerable number of uh, art uh, documents, uh, which are housed over in archives and special collections at UConn. Uh, 
the documents uh, date back uh, to the uh, mid-19th uh, century. Uh, there are uh, documents, including correspondence from the Civil War there. Well, you're also um, an author of many works. Um, uh, Thank you. They're really wide-ranging over a lot of different subjects and a lot of different sort of uh, modalities, I guess, of writing or scholarship. Um, Most notably, I mean, I don't know most notably, but like um, significantly, um, AIDS and American Apocalypticism, the Cultural Semiotics of an Epidemic, um, as well as quite a a number of journal articles. Um, So I really want to ask you about that. Yeah, I'd be glad to talk with you about that. Yeah, wonderful. Yeah. Uh, also, co-author of um, uh, writing and nursing, a brief guide published by Oxford University Press, which priced at twenty dollars is highly affordable and the perfect gift for any nursing student about to start in the fall semester. Wow. Well, um... I do a better job of marketing than the university uh, than Oxford University. <laughs> Well, you know, uh, Oxford is a big uh, empire, I guess, you know, some of us might get a little uh, lost in the shuffle. But um, yeah, I I really want to ask you about several of those works. To start, though, where are you from? Um, Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Yeah, I'd be glad to. Um, So I was born and raised south of the Mason-Dixon line. Uh, born in the early 1950s in Washington, D.C., uh, which is, uh, was the home of both of my parents, um, although my mother was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, moved to Washington with her family when she was a girl, and was raised in the Maryland suburbs uh, of D.C., uh, Montgomery County, Rockville, Maryland, Wheaton, Maryland. And so in terms of sort of family background and family, uh, we're all sort of Marylanders and Southerners, my mother's people from uh, Alexandria, Virginia, uh, my father's people from Emporia, uh, Virginia, which is in the south side, south central Virginia. What did your parents do? Well, um, my father, who had entered the Navy before finishing high school, and therefore at the age of 17 had to get his parents' permission, uh, fought in World War II, then uh, earned a a graduate equivalency degree when he returned to the States, um, and then went to a technical school, uh, the Capital Radio and Engineering Institute, CREI, which no longer exists, um, and became an electronic technician worked uh, particularly for a variety of federal installations, especially naval installations. Worked at the Naval Ordnance Lab uh, in White Oak, Maryland, uh, which has now moved on some other place. It's now the the home of the Food and Drug Administration. And um, then the David Taylor Model Basin in Cabin John, Maryland, uh, eventually uh, coming to work for Uh, NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. Now, during the entirety of the 1960s, from 1960 or 61 to 68, 67, I guess, 67, my father went to college, part-time, two classes every semester for eight years. 
So he was at my eighth grade graduation, and I was at his college graduation. That's so sweet. Uh, and then a few years later, I went to college. And then a few years after that, my mother went to college. And uh, she graduated. Dad had graduated from the University of Maryland, and uh, Mom had graduated from, eventually graduated in the early 80s from the University of Maryland. Mom worked for the Commissioner of Food and Drug Administration uh, for many years, and then the Center for Biologics at the National Institutes of Health. Um, so, for of course, for the first part of, of my life and my brother and sister's life, uh, uh, Mom was a, was working in the home uh, as a homemaker. She refused the term housewife. She said she was a homemaker, and indeed she was. Both of them have passed on, alas, but uh, have left their mark on my brother and sister and me uh, in very positive ways. And uh, my brother and sister and I often find ourselves channeling our parents. It sounds like your your story and your family's story are very embedded in the experience of the baby boom generation and the Cold War. Uh, would you say that's the case? Yeah, I think so. Now, of course, my parents' uh, experience was shaped profoundly by the Great Depression and World War II. And in particular, I think um, a community ethos uh, an ethos of service. And both of my parents, and especially my mother, uh, was profoundly um, committed to uh, equality. Uh, and that includes gender and racial and ethnic equality. Um, and so I'd like to tell you a story about my mother, just to give you an example of how she um, put her put her words into action. In the summer of 1963, my father had just graduated from Montgomery College with his associate degree and was starting at uh, the University of Maryland, taking summer courses. And uh, you can imagine what uh, hot, steamy summers are like in Washington, D.C. And so we were not uh, particularly affluent. We, we my family couldn't afford to have a membership in a, in a pool, a swimming pool club, a swim club. So there were a number of swimming pools that were sort of publicly available. Um, one of those, when I was very little, was Glen Echo Park, an amusement park. But there had been, uh, the summer before, there had been uh, race-related strife there. So I remember quite vividly, summer of 1963, and remember 63 was a significant turning point year in the United States. Uh, later that summer, uh, the March on Washington. It was a pivotal uh, year in terms of uh, the civil rights movement. Um, and so my mother took me to the Chevy Chase Lake uh, swimming pool, which was privately owned, but open to the public. You know, it was like 50 cents for a child and a dollar for an adult. You could swim as long as you wanted. So this particular day, we had to park way down Connecticut Avenue on a side street. And, um, you know, walking there through the, uh, through the heat. 
And as we got up to the pool, there, there was a ticket booth that you, you would go up to. Um, but this day, there was a card table sitting out front. And my mother went up. We stood in line. My mother went up because she, uh, when we got to, to the head of the line. And she said, uh, you know, one adult, one child. And they replied, oh, uh, no, 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 we're, we're now a membership club. Now, I don't need to explain to you what that meant in 1963, that a public facility suddenly had declared itself a membership club. And then they immediately followed up by saying, but membership is only $5. Now, there were a number of things my mother could have done. She could have said to herself, um, my, it's a hot day. My son uh, wants to go swimming. I'm, you know, I, I'm not going to change the world. This isn't going to change the world. I'm, I'll pay the five dollars. Or my mother could have simply said, uh, "No, thank you," and we walked away. But that was not like Lucy. So in that, instead, <laughs> Lucy performed, performed surgery without uh, a license. She reamed them out a new orifice and said, I know why you're doing this. You're doing this to keep Negroes out of this swimming pool, and I will have no part of this. And then she yanked me by the arm, and she stormed off. So, I mean, I think that gives you some idea of the, uh, the, the sensibility of my mother. My father, we, uh, we were Roman Catholic, and of course in those days, in the 50s, the, the neighborhood I lived in, the suburban neighborhood, had a Catholic parish just down the street. I walked to school, and the parish was really the center of educational life, religious spiritual life, and social life as well. Uh, but uh, my father, who was a much quieter person in terms of his commitments to justice, uh, was a member of the St. Vincent de Paul Society, uh, which was a men's fraternity for the service of people in need. And so from time to time, um, he would get a call at home to the effect that there was a family uh, that needed groceries. And two men would go to the uh, DG, DGA, the District Grocery Store, DGS, whatever it was, um, and uh, on an account for the St. Vincent de Paul Society with, with a bag of groceries, and together they would take the groceries to the, to the person's home. And, you know, this didn't happen too often, but it happened often enough to feel remarkable to me that in my comfortable middle-middle class neighborhood, there were people with with the physical needs, economic and physical needs. Uh, you know, I never went hungry. Uh, my father, except for a, a brief period when he had mistakenly uh, been lured to work in, for a, a private company, and he had set up their lab for them, and then as soon as he set up their lab, they fired him, hired somebody cheaper to run the lab. Uh, he worked for the federal government, so he was he had stable employment. 
Uh, but this notion that there were people in, in this very white, uh, very middle, middle class suburb who were needy uh, was quite remarkable to me. Right. Um, what we would now call uh, euphemistically food insecurity, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. um, <laughs> I, I wondered about this. So was your, do you feel like your family was um, influenced by the tradition of Catholic social thought or the Catholic worker movement? Was that inflected in their sort of um, worldview or conduct? It, it was perhaps only at a, at a remove, certainly not the Catholic worker movement, uh, which would I don't think my parents either of them would have been familiar with Dorothy Day, but I think it was actually I think it was probably um, in relation to um, uh, the, um, the the Catholic labor movement and the Catholic um, organized labor teachings and economic justice uh, with labor. It was also informed by uh, their experience of, of the Depression. And it was also informed by my mother's experience of um, uh, economic instability in her family life. So let me tell you two stories. Her mother and her mother's two siblings, uh, my Aunt Annie and my Uncle Tom, were orphaned uh, when they were children. Aunt Annie and Uncle Tom were farmed out to one family. My uh, grandmother was farmed out to another family, uh, the Mahoney's. Um, this has always been a bad name in my family history because the Mahoney's constantly reminded my grandmother uh, that she was there only uh, because of their generosity, uh, she was, uh, you know, she was uh, almost not quite a servant, but uh, certainly subservient. And they were, they were, uh, they were lace Irish, and uh, <laughs> a little more high tone. And um, uh, so, so my and, and my mother, of course, would have learned that story uh, from her mother whom she was very close, that it was, um, uh, that being, that private charity is often very ungenerous. And so my mother in particular, my father also, but my mother in particular understood that um, uh, public support for those in need was an important part of uh, the American community, and that, that you couldn't rely on private charity. Private charity was was uh, inconsistent, um, and often um, uh, ungenerous, discriminatory, um, discriminatory, and often constantly reminding you of of its uh, supposed largesse with you. I think the other thing was um, my mother's mother was uh, in poor health uh, in late in her life, and uh, her mother uh, 
needed uh, medical care and health care. She, uh, she had Parkinson's disease. She uh, suffered a massive stroke. Uh, and so health care for her and later health care for my mother's uh, father uh, was very difficult to come by. This would have been the early 60s. Mm-hmm. So my parents were both uh, great supporters of Medicare. In, 1960, in the late 50s and early 60s, my mother's uh, youngest sibling, my Aunt Betty, was uh, Richard Nixon's receptionist when he was vice president, uh, Betty McVeigh. Now, this, this is not uh, Rosemary Woods, of course. It was his executive secretary. Um, of the 17 and a half minutes missing on the Nixon tape fame or infamy, um, but my Aunt Betty was his receptionist when he was vice president, so she had secured uh, passes to the Senate gallery um, for the vote. I think it was the first vote in 1960, uh, the first vote on Medicare. And uh, so there we were sitting uh, up in the gallery in the vice president's section of the gallery. We were seated um uh, directly across the chamber, the Senate chamber, from the president of the Senate, that is to say, Vice President Richard Nixon. And directly below us, when we looked over the railing, uh, was the junior senator from Massachusetts, hmm. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And you'll recall that in 1960, the two of them were uh, opposing candidates for the presidency. Alas, the, uh, uh, the bill went down to defeat, I think, by a fairly short, uh, small margin. And it was, but it was one of those, you know, American turning points, uh, and this, of course, is typical of my mother. my mother. My mother did not want to experience life through, uh, you know, in a vicarious way. Uh, so if, if history was happening, she wanted to be there. Um, and so there were a number of events, number of occasions when uh, uh, she when she showed up uh, to be there. And of course, when you're living in Washington D.C., there are lots of events and occasions when you can do that. But I think that those those were the things that that struck her as why it was important for there to be a robust public support uh, for those in need. Yeah, I always wonder about this, you know, it it almost feels like flipping a coin, uh, how one person reacts to uh, social problems or, or their own experience of privation or difficulty, and one takes a liberal interpretation of it, which is about this sort of uh, ethic of shared sacrifice and shared... Um, you know, sort of benevolence. I mean, not in a noblesse oblige way, but like uh-huh. the, that we should spread the wealth around and other people um, take from the those exact same experiences and those exact same events, a conservative interpretation, which to those people is just as uh, generous as the other side. And and from the conservative point of view, they, they, they see themselves as generous, compassionate, kind people. They just have come to a very different conclusion about life. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and some of my uh, aunts and uncles, or at least my uncles, 
uh, were utterly unrepentant and quite transparent racists. Go figure. You go to war with the army you have, as a great man once said. I really wonder, I, I think about this all the time, like the generation that has come of age in the early 21st century has experienced just, um, you know, war, terrorism, economic recessions, a plague, um, a precarity and employment, um, sort of a declining standard of living. I really wonder what sort of conclusions they will take from that or what way that will be imprinted on them, uh, the, the millennials and the Zoomers, maybe in a similar way to the Depression generation. I mean, it's impossible to say, but I'm very curious about that. Well, what I see, Alex, um, uh, is actually a split in that generational cohort. And I think it's a split predicated upon their, um, their employability. Students who are my nursing students, the engineering students I've taught at UConn, uh, some of the business students I've taught at UConn, do not seem particularly alarmed for their own sake about things like uh, global climate change, do not seem to be bordering on despair, seem to have a sense that uh, they are preparing for stable, lifelong employment. It's not that they're not necessarily socially conscious. Uh, certainly in the School of Nursing, uh, issues related to uh, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion are an important part of our, our curriculum, our conversations. But they, um, they seem um, less preoccupied with um, despair. Uh, about the state of the world. Unlike some other students, uh, especially students in the humanities uh, and social sciences, who seem a lot more alarmed and a lot less secure about the future. Now, I've, I've, I've defined that as, as a division by their employability. That's my that's my own interpretation of it, of course. But it does seem to me that the students who raise these big global issues and global anxieties are generally not coming from uh, the majors where their uh, employment is almost assured. Nursing students, you know, their employment is, is almost assured. That makes sense. That's a very interesting way to look at it. Uh, I've not thought of it that way. Um, I guess I thought this was more of a sort of difference of temperament. Um, although a difference of temperament might lead you into different fields, right? I think you're on to something there, right? And I've, I, I've often uh, asked students over the last 10 or 15 years if they are optimistic about the future. And the, I don't know, I haven't asked recently because things have been so weird, but what people usually say is, um, I am pessimistic about young people. I mean, I'm talking about people under, say, 35. Um, I'm optimistic about my personal fortunes, but I'm pessimistic about the world's fortunes. They're going to college. Many of them are the first in their generation to go to college. They're 
planning to have good careers, families, own homes. Um, whether all that will happen remains to be seen, but they, they, they're on a trajectory of, of self-improvement where they imagine a good future for themselves. But then when you ask about the big picture, a lot of them are pessimistic. It's a very interesting divergence. Uh-huh. As if those two things are not connected. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And uh, uh, but I think, yeah, I'm not sure that my generation, uh, and I, gener- I, I entered college 50 years ago, I'm not sure that my generation was necessarily that different. Um, we inherited the um, economic and social optimism of the 50s and 60s, uh, quickly soon to be dashed <laughs> in the 70s. Uh, but uh, we inherited that optimism while at the same time being concerned about um, uh, inequality, uh, uh, violence throughout the world, warfare, the Vietnam War, um, nuclear war, pollution, environmental pollution. We, we had those concerns. So I want to ask you uh, a different question. How old were you when you realized that you wanted to be a priest? Ah, okay, okay. I would have been... um, Now, of course, I'm, you know, I had a a, a split Catholic childhood, by which I mean I was born into the old Catholic Church, the pre-Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council Church, uh, born into it, uh, made my first communion in it, probably was confirmed in it, um, and then uh, sort of my my more mature adolescent spiritual life uh, shaped by the uh, the Reformed uh, conciliar Reformed Church post Vatican II, um, and so you know when when you're when you're growing up. In, in that Catholic community, um, even though we were not, my family was not uh, deeply ethnically Catholic. You know, we, we had a lot of friends who were uh, Italian Catholics and friends who were Irish Catholics. And, you know, especially among the, the friends who were Irish Catholic, they had at least one uncle who was a priest and at least one aunt who was a nun. Um, but my my mother, my mother's family is not like that. But still, you know, the priest was this significant figure, and uh, my closest, my first intimate, close emotional bonding friend, Gerard Murphy, and I were both interested in being priests. And you know, I think there was, I think there was a um, uh, a kind of latency romantic thing there. Uh, that he and I could both be priests and we, we could be priests together uh, for the rest of our lives. And uh, 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 so the other thing I can tell you I remember uh, was that I had absolute, I had an aversion to military service as a boy. I mean, it was a it was a conscious aversion to military service. I nothing about military. You know, and in those days, uh, you know, our fathers had all fought in World War II, and there were 
World War II television shows and movies and so forth. And, uh, um, and while I watched those and enjoyed them, I suppose, uh, I, I had a positive aversion to uh, war. And at some point I learned that um, they couldn't uh, um, uh, draft you for military service if you were going to be a priest. So that was one of my equations. I mean, it's a strange thing to be thinking about when you're eight or ten years old. Uh, but I was a very peculiar child. That's so interesting. I mean, there was a time when I was probably in middle school um, or high school, you know, off and on, where I really thought that being a member of clergy um, would be um, something I would really like to do. But the fact that I didn't have actual religious um, beliefs or faith is a little bit of a problem, uh, right? Um, it, it makes me think of that. Um, have you seen that Bergman movie, uh, Winter Light? No. It's about this pastor. Um, it's in, it's early 60s, I think. And there's a pastor in Sweden and... Uh, one of his parishioners is like really um, obsessed with nuclear war and like the prospect of nuclear annihilation. And the whole story sort of sets him in motion of like having a lot of doubt of his own about how he is unable to make the, the person feel better. And also that makes him doubt his own faith to some extent. So I thought that was such, I, it's one of my favorite movies actually. I think it's really interesting that you talked about this aversion to military service, um, but also this affinity for um, religious service, we might say. Yeah. In, yeah. The, in the sense that, like, the Catholic Church and the military are two of the only, like, kind of autonomous social institutions in America that are, like, s kind of separate from the market. You know, they have their own hierarchy and their own norms and their own culture and... People go into the military or into the church um, not expecting to make money per se, not, you know, they're, 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 they're a little bit outside of capitalism in, in some way, not entirely, obviously. Mm -hmm. I wonder, do you see them, did, when you were young, did you see these things, you didn't want to join one institution, you wanted to join the other, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Um, certainly the, um, the formation of priests up through the 1960s, I probably would not have known this, but certainly the formation of priests, Catholic priests, through the 1960s um, was uh, predicated on a somewhat martial uh, ethos that you were, you know, the seminary was a kind of boot camp. Uh, in which uh, you were you were drilled in a, uh, and had a highly regulated life. Uh, you were separated from the rest of the world. You had a highly regulated life. Uh, daily life was regulated. Um, you um, were um, uh, you vowed obedience to your bishop and his successors. Um, and uh, <laughs> that ethos changed dramatically in the 70s 
where self-actualization became, in many Catholic seminaries, certainly the Theological College of Catholic University, where I was from 77 to 1981, um, was uh, informed by um, a self-actualization ethos. Now that eventually uh, disappeared everywhere, I think, uh, and became returned to that older model of, uh, of discipline. Um, but uh, and and it's it is still very much, you know, when when the um, when you were a priest, um, uh, you know, you would be and could be uh, and were reassigned by your bishop uh, at whenever you know whenever the bishop wanted to reassign you. Um, by the time I was a priest in the 1980s, um, it was there was a negotiation, there was a conversation, uh, there was a priest personnel committee, and you'd meet with them and have a conversation, and you might have a private conversation with your bishop about you know I really would like to go here, um, and uh, so there was a lot more of that ethos of self-actualization. I think that's changed, uh, but I found I found that uh, much more appealing than the notion that you could be sent anywhere at any time in your life. When did you decide that you had to leave the clergy? When did you decide that you couldn't be a priest anymore? Boy, that's a great question. Um, and of course it was... Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you the process, and then I'll tell you the moment. Great. Because it was it was a years long process. When I was preparing, well, I was a deacon. I had been ordained as a deacon, which in the Catholic Church is a is a clerical order. Uh, when I was a deacon and preparing for ordination to the priesthood, I began to have panic attacks, full blown panic. And then after I was ordained and assigned to a parish, um, I, um, short order, started the, the therapy. When was that, roughly? Uh, well, I would have been 1981. I was ordained early as a priest, ordained early in 1981. And then um, it would have been probably the fall of 81 uh, when I was assigned to a parish in Petersburg, Virginia, that I began to go to psychotherapy. Um, and went to the Virginia Institute of Pastoral Care in Richmond, Virginia. And, you know, began to explore what was going on. Um, and then, uh, over the following years, um, I was part of a priest support group uh, within the, 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 this was a, a formal uh, resource that the Diocese of Richmond had at the time, uh, groups of priests who wanted to participate in priest support groups would get together once a month, usually an overnight, um, usually with a kind of uh, formal process of sharing, personal sharing, and you know, dealing with struggles and so forth. Sometimes we had a, a facilitator. Um, and uh, I was uh, I was continuing in psychotherapy. I went. I started seeing a Catholic nun 
a spiritual direction. Um, I was, uh, so I had all these points of exploration and discernment uh, at various levels. And really was struggling, you know, do I stay, do I go? Um, I became pastor of a parish in Norfolk, Virginia. I was there as pastor for two years. Uh, do I stay, do I go? Uh, I mean, it was, it had become an explicit question at this point. You know, at, at a certain point it was, how do I accommodate uh, staying? How do I make it possible to stay? And then it became, do I stay, do I go? So here's how, uh, here's how it, I decided in very early spring of 1988, I had a dream. I was pastor of, the, of a parish, and I dreamed that I was in, that the, the, this parish had, um, had a school, and a school auditorium uh, that had been for decades had been the church building for this parish. It had never built a separate worship space. The auditorium uh, was the was the worship space um, <laughs> with, with long fluorescent lights uh, uh, along the ceiling. Very 1940s, 50s Catholic uh, post-war suburbia. You know, the first thing you built, the first thing you built was the school, and you had mass in the auditorium, and eventually you could build a church. So anyway, I dreamed that I was in that auditorium slash worship space, but it was an utter ruin. The roof had collapsed. Uh, window glass was broken, there were trees growing out of things, there was, you know, debris all over the space. And I was being chased, C-H-A-S-E-D, by something monstrous. And I was running for my life. I don't know what I'd what this monstrous thing was. And I leapt through one of the broken windows and landed outside. And as soon as I landed outside, I was safe. So I had a, 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 couple, a couple of days later, I had um, an appointment, regular appointment, with, my, with the nun who was my spiritual director. And I'm telling her this story. And got to the end, and I said, so, I guess that means I'm going to leave. She just nodded her head. <laughs> so that's how it happened. Um, and, you know, I, I, as I say, I vividly recall that dream. That must have been really scary to leave this institution you had been in for m most of your adult life, right? Alex, hugely. And uh, what I realized was I, I had been, um, much of my therapy experience during the 80s was in group therapy. 
And one of the experiences in group therapy is, of course, there were always uh, women who were struggling with their marriages and struggling with leaving their husbands, leaving their place in society, leaving the economic security. And what I realized is that priests are the concubines or the wives of their bishops. Everything is taken care of. You, um, your housing, your food, your insurance, um, your auto expenses, your medical expenses, uh, and you get an, an allowance, personal allowance. Everything is taken care of. Um, you will never have any, any physical wants. Uh, you can never lose your job. You, know, you can never be divorced from your bishop, if you will. Um, so it's, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it was absolute, and you have this extraordinary place in society. I mean, access, social access to all, you know, almost any home, any place, because you are this highly significant figure. And I can see what you mean about sort of the status. Um oh. In the same way that, like, I don't know, being a a police officer or a firefighter or a teacher has a kind of a little bit of an exalted social status, Uh, a pastor or a priest might not make much, if any, money um, or have economic power, but they do hold a a place of, like, reverence in in a community. You have an important social place, even among those who aren't Catholics. Now, I do have to correct something you just said about the economic uh, 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 power of a priest. Um, (laughs) (laughs) At least diocesan priests don't take a vow of poverty. And keep in mind, if you were to, and I had to do this when I left, I had to figure out what what is the equivalent uh, of my my life in the priesthood. So, housing, auto expenses, all insurance, medical expenses, a stipend from the diocese, and people are always giving you money. Always giving you money. And I'm talking about, and then of course at Christmas and uh, Easter, about thousands of dollars in cash gifts for your use. So when I left, and this was in 1988, I figured out that my my annual lifestyle was about the equivalent of someone earning $45,000 a year. In the money of that time? In the money of that time. Which, okay, so that's a lot. That's a lot. Huh. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I guess my impression of this was informed by the idea of nuns taking a vow of poverty, and also right. like Protestant pastors in small towns. Yeah. You know, it's like yeah. they have a very low income relative to people of similar status who are like lawyers or bankers yeah. or something, right? You know? Um, so yeah. that's it. That's fascinating. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's part of the, uh, you know, it's part of the propaganda, part of Catholic propaganda, you know, of, 
nothing's too good for father because he makes such sacrifices. Hmm. <laughs> it's good work if you um, can get it. I, uh, the priest, uh, in the Diocese of Richmond at the time, priests had uh, five weeks of, of vacation. Uh, I've never had that much vacation since. In America, that's extremely uncommon. Uh, right, right. It's a very European model, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I left, people asked me, um, well, so what do you miss about it? And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of things that I missed about it, uh, and a lot of things I didn't miss about it. But um, one of the, th- I, so usually what I say, well, the two things I really miss are the social status and the disposable income. You can't beat that with a stick. The writer John Green um, recently said, um, not too long ago, um, that the problem with despair is that it isn't very productive. Like a replicating virus, all despair makes is more of itself. Makes copies of itself. It doesn't do anything. I mean, I'm now I'm sort of extemporizing, but... Um, I found this very similar sentiment in um, a sermon by um, Reverend Dr. William Evertsberg from uh, June of 2020, when we were in the midst of this um, nightmare that has been happening. He was saying, viruses are terrifying in their rudimentary simplicity. They cannot move, grow, persist, or perpetuate. A virus, nothing more than a packet of information, needs a host. This is not a war because the virus has no agency. It is a machine, not a monster, nothing more than a microscopic copy machine. It's just a tiny Xerox photocopier. All it does is make copies of itself. And I was thinking of this quote because uh, John Green is talking about uh, suicidal ideation and um, we feel despair, but it's, it's just a virus in a way. I mean... I hate these sort of bio- medicalizing or biological mm-hmm. metaphors for things, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. still, um, there's a similar sense here of um, the sort of ability of uh, both a virus and despair to perpetuate themselves. So having said that, I'm wondering when the HIV um, crisis first uh, landed on your doorstep, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So I was in, uh, I was a priest in Petersburg from 
International Convention uh, of Dignity USA. Uh, I became the chaplain of the Dignity chapter. And so it was, it was in 84, and I remember in the summer of 84, really becoming aware of uh, uh, the AIDS epidemic. Um, I, was a, I was attending a uh, workshop at the public library downtown, sponsored, I think, by one of the AIDS uh, service organizations at the time there. Uh, uh, fairly quickly, uh, I think I may have been one of the few, maybe the only clergyman at this this training event. Um, uh, very quickly, I became um, uh, a reliable uh, clergy person uh, for um, uh, pastoral needs for people with uh, HIV infection or AIDS. Um, and... Uh, then, I guess it was about 1986 uh, that a friend of mine, uh, Jack Jacknick, uh, I was, uh, became ill. Um, and uh, I was in his, uh, he was hospitalized, and I was in his hospital room with him alone when the doctor came in with the news uh, uh, that he, he had AIDS. You know, which was, was the first time that I had a friend uh, who was uh, diagnosed. And then, of course, thereafter, uh, lots and lots of people, uh, mostly men, mostly gay men. And so I, not only that I become uh, the, a person, a clergy person who could reliably uh, provide pastoral care, um, but then also for memorial services and, and that sort of thing. Um, there weren't many, uh, uh, you know, as you can imagine, there weren't many available. Even nurses in in Norfolk, Virginia Beach, in in eighty, you know, in eighty four, eighty five, uh, were very uncomfortable, uh, very anxious about uh, uh, you know the prospects of infection and that sort of thing. Even though they didn't need to be. I um, know a nurse. Um... She's retired now, but here in Atlanta, who was working during the height of HIV, and she's told me that um, people didn't want to touch any of the patients, the victims. Um, their bodies were put in like black garbage bags and just, you know, treated as, um, you know, m worse than radioactive. And I think about that, I think it's very interesting. You talk about in your book, um, AIDS and American apocalypticism, that this idea of pollution, of contamination, um, is very connected to people's fears of an apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. There, there is something, um, there's something visceral uh, about being defiled, uh, polluted, tainted, um, and of course, you know, this relates to um, the, the concept of stigma and Irving mm. Goffman's book on stigma and Goffman's notion of um, stigma as spoiled 
identity, uh, which I think is a very uh, precise and vivid phrase, spoiled identity, um, that you are permanently tainted. Um, and, you know, this was, the, this was the discourse from Christian fundamentalists in the 19, late 1960s as um, the homophile gay and then gay rights movement uh, became more visible. And certainly by the 70s, uh, I spent a fair amount of time reading those um, anti-gay polemics of Christian fundamentalists published in the in the 1960s and 70s, um, and they they are it, it. So homosexuality is both a pollution and polluting. Uh, that that the homosexual person uh, is pollutes others. Uh, that you can become infected with homosexuality. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's very interesting to me how, um, and I've thought about this a lot over the years, how uh, these metaphors about uh, morality and then sort of sin and pollution are uh, very much organized around sexual violence, like uh, the opposing army of the opposing tribe coming in and just raping everybody, the women, um, deep being defiled, being besmirched and permanently marked like you're you're no good anymore you've been violated um i I, i've always wondered why they're so fixated on this um there's a quote in your book uh from one of these uh, evangelical people um that mass rapes will come just as surely as predicted in the gospels um they seem very luridly fascinated with um the idea of mass rape um they talk about a, a gang of uh, homosexuals killing a 10 year old child or something um, this rapacious rapacious um, kind of entity and I I don't know I, I don't know if you can even speculate about that but like just the the metaphors of sexual violence that seem to be organized around this mm-hmm. well um, so first of all I, I uh, and that is yeah I, re- I remember that quote uh, uh, I, there is no place in the Gospels, unless perhaps it's an apocryphal Gospel with which I am not familiar, in which there is a forecast of, of mass rapes. I, I don't know what. <laughs> I, uh, the, you, know, you had I, to get the director's cut. Uh, well, I was going to say, or maybe it was uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Gospel according to uh, Marquis de Sade. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> So, you know, there is, there has been some social science research in recent years to indicate a correlation between um, uh, social and religious conservatism and anxiety about infection, anxiety about physical pollution, cleanliness, uh, low tolerance for and high disgust of various kinds of of sort of external substances. And and I think uh, 
fundamentalist mind cannot um, cannot tolerate ambiguity or fluidity, uh, and particularly uh, the, the fundamentalist mind has highly policed and guarded borders. Uh, and that includes the personal borders of the body. Yeah, you talk about in the book this boundary between inside and outside and how it becomes blurred by infection. And that's very threatening. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the notion of penetration. Uh, and then, of course, this is also spills out over into the, the national skin, the national boundary, the national border, and the need to, to shore it up. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and that makes sense for any culture, any religion, any nation to have an anxiety about um, interior and exterior uh, threats from outside. Um, but, as you've noted, um, the United States culture has a a peculiar fixation on apocalyptic narratives, Uh, these narratives of a sort of uh, pervasive infection and annihilation. Uh, Why do you, do you have any thoughts about why Americans are so, uh, have for for centuries been uh, very predisposed to like Mm pre-millenarian kinds of narratives? Why do you think that is? Well, first of all, I guess we could we could uh, turn to Pierre Bourdieu and say that it's the American habitus, that it has become uh, this ingrained practice. We could turn to Kenneth Burke and see it as just our, our local equipment for living. It is present at the beginning of the Western European colonization of the Americas. Uh, Columbus imagined himself an end times prophet. He collected a book of prophecies, uh, a manuscript, a kind of um, miscellany uh, of prophecies that he felt were relevant to, to him and his time. Uh, he was informed by uh, a, a Catholic cardinal, French cardinal, Dailly, and I can I can send you uh, uh, the bibliographic um, references uh, to a very fine book on Dailly. Uh, and you know he he came to Ferdinand and Isabella, who in some ways believed themselves to be at the end times. They had driven out the Moors, the great. Um, you know, the great uh, antichrist demonic uh, figures for uh, medieval Catholicism. They had either converted or driven out the Jews, you know, the historical uh, antichrist, the, the tribe of the, you know, the, of the antichrist. They had united Spain in 1492. And so um, they were quite uh, willing to see themselves as the Harbingers of the end time, and of course, one of the one of the signs of the end time would be the conversion of the whole world, particularly the conversion of the Jews. Right. So, 
when, when, um, you know, when Columbus discovered these peoples uh, in the Americas, and eventually when it was realized that they were not Indians in India, but this was a whole other confident, uh, uh, continent and a whole other people. So who, who were these people? Well, one of the fantasies about who these Native Americans were is that they were the lost tribes of Israel. Which becomes part of the uh, Church of Latter-day Saints kind of uh, mythology, right? Exactly. Exactly. But this was also in the imagination of English Protestants uh, in the 17th century. So there's this notion, you know, that Catholics uh, with Columbus, Ferdinand and Isabella, eventually the Protestants, English Protestants, that this is the place, this is the place where the great drama of the end times will happen. We will convert these Jews, <laughs> we'll convert these, these people who must be the lost tribes of Israel. And this is where the end times will happen, and this will be the this will be the new Canaan. Yeah, that's uh, the new Jerusalem, city on a hill, Zion. We must yeah. be, you know, as it were, a city on a hill, like to the nations. As you sort of suggest, it's it's kind of baked into the cake to some extent, um, and seeing the new world as this um, stage for sort of a millennial drama. Now, there is another piece to that, though, that I want to add. It isn't just uh, that it's baked in. Apocalypticism and millenarianism gives deeply unsettled Americans a sense of identity, a sense of coherence. In our utterly rootless, incoherent insanely fluid, market-driven, particularly North America, society. It gives us a sense of order. It explains everything. It explains why our best efforts to do this or that are undermined, because of course the great Satan is undermining all of our best efforts and uh, you know the Antichrist is lurking around the corner and that's that's why that's why my crops fail that's why my business fails and it appeals apocalypticism appeals to American narcissism yes because it says to us you you little schmuck you little you know nudge in a, a, a village or a little town <clears throat> out in the plains or out in western New York State or wherever, on uh, the frontiers, you are at the center of the cosmic drama. You're mm -hmm. a participant. You're a player in the cosmic drama. You know, you may feel utterly disempowered by the social, economic, and political forces, but you are, in fact, a central figure in the cosmic drama. So historians have looked at this time period of the market revolution in the 1830s and 1840s, which is 
exactly contiguous with the Second Great Awakening. People who are in a new, disorderly, chaotic circumstance, who can you trust? Everybody's a stranger. Everything is in flux. Um, you, your life can be ruined uh, at the drop of a hat. There's no like stable continuity of a community. And this provides some stability and order, but also this sense that like in this big, uh, chaotic, confusing, seemingly random universe, I'm important. Exactly. I'm not just a bit player or a pawn uh, of other people and other forces. I am a I am a foot soldier, you know, uh, in in and an essential part of the cosmic drama. And more to the point, I am a part of a small select society that knows what's going on. You know, it's it's QAnon of the 19th century, you know. Uh, I'm part of a select society that that sees the, the conspiracy that's behind everything. So that's interesting. Yeah, the conspiratorial mindset is very connected to the apocalyptic mindset, right? And right. Well, the paranoid style of American politics. Richard Hofstadter, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I hate to like speak as if a culture or a nation has like a fixed character. I don't think there is a fixed American character, but there are some uh, consistent patterns and echoes, um, and that's one of them. And that obviously came to mind in the 80s when um, people felt like everything was kind of, I mean, I guess with sort of a wave of crime and the rise of HIV and the suburban alienation where people don't know their neighbors or they're not in these sort of um, traditional coherent communities that they might have grown up in in the 30s or 40s the satanic panic, all of this, this oh, yeah. sort of um, freak out about dangerous, scary forces. Stranger danger. Stranger, Stranger danger. danger. Yes. Right. So you were, um, you know, a, 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 a priest during that period of time. Uh, you decided to leave. Right. You got a PhD in um, well, I, literature. Well, I got a job at a community college uh, teaching English. And then did my PhD while I was employed full-time there. Did it at a small state university in western Pennsylvania whose distinction was that they had a, a PhD program that allowed you to fulfill the residency requirement by going full-time consecutive summers. So instead of, you know, the typical PhD program requires you to be full-time, you know, for one academic year, which would have required me to uh, stop working and stop paying my mortgage and <laughs> God knows what else. I, um, this, this looked like a good program. The program also was um, uh, focused on embedding critical theory in pedagogy and how to use literary and cultural theory uh, pedagogically. So it was uh, it was committed not simply to sort of rarefied uh, theoretical scholarship, but actually engaging uh, critical theory in your teaching 
that was a key component, which at the time was uh, was was an important commitment for me. And then finished finished the uh, the PhD in ninety seven. Yeah, and in the dissertation slash book that you were writing at that time, um, you talk about Foucault and Bourdieu and like these uh, critical theory people, but you're trying to ground it it seems, in a lived reality that's very palpable and concrete. So how does somebody go from being a priest to a literature PhD student to working, teaching and working and writing in a nursing school? Like, that's a very unique career path. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, but there are continuities, as you can imagine, not discontinuities. So let's talk about how I went from a master's degree in English in 1977 to a Catholic seminary from 77 to 81. And um, at that moment in theology, in mainstream theology, um, I guess could be characterized as the narrative term in Hmm. theology. That the dogmatic and doctrinal battles that had so perplexed Christian denominations for most of their history um, began to be at least calmed down or at least ceasefire, if not peace treaties, ceasefires in the 60s in the ecumenical movement looking, committed to looking for ways of rapprochement and uh, common ground. And the common ground was stories, life stories, faith stories, biblical stories. And so what I was able to to do in my seminary formation um, was to take my um, literary sensibilities and my literary uh, analytical and textual skills uh, and apply that in the courses I was taking for my master's degree in theology and wrote a book, uh, not wrote a book, not wrote a book, I wrote a master's thesis on life story in the concept of life story in uh, a, uh, a contemporary theologian at Notre Dame named John S. Dunn D-U-N-N-E, and uh, the ways in which his uh, theological approach to how we engage with narratives, whether they are personal faith narratives or biblical narratives, the way we engage with them imaginatively and then return (coughs) to our own uh, standpoint, but we return changed in some ways. Um, I connected that with uh, what was at the time called reader response criticism. Oh, right. Yeah. You know, which was, uh, you know, uh, uh, sometimes called affective stylistics, but reader response uh, criticism. And so, I, you know, it was a, it was a project that was connecting theology with um with literary uh, concepts, literary studies, especially narrative. So, uh, you know, then uh, as a priest, I w- 
was also, you know, I was preaching every Sunday, preaching every day, and you preach on the, the, the biblical texts assigned in the lectionary for that day. And that's a, kind of a form of literary analysis, right? So um, then, you know, I always had a heart in academia. And, you know, that never left me, the love of academia. So returning to an academic position in 1989, when I uh, took my first full-time position at the community college, uh, was a kind of homecoming for me. You know, I felt connected there. Now, um, how did I, so how did I get that job? How I got that job was that they were looking for uh, someone with an experience and background in technical writing. And the reason that I could claim, um, honestly, uh, a background in technical writing was that when I was a grad student at the University of Illinois, I had taught writing courses for the engineering students in the School of Engineering at Illinois. So I had that on my CV. And uh, in the late 80s, finding somebody with any kind of credentials or experience teaching technical writing was, uh, uh, was difficult. I, I taught a technical writing course as an adjunct. I later asked the department chair, um, you know, well, eventually when a full-time position opened up uh, during the summer of, of 89, I, had, I guess I had taught for them as an adjunct in the spring semester of 89 and then taught, then, then in the summer of 89, the... Uh, uh, the dean of the, of the division of, of humanities called me and said, we have a full-time opening for a technical uh, writing instructor. I'd like you to think about applying for it. And so uh, later when I asked him, why, why, did you, why, you know, why did you call me? Because there was actually an internal candidate who was also an adjunct. I said, why did you call me? He said, well, for one thing, you showed up on the first class with a syllabus. <laughs> uh, excuse me? <laughs> he said, you showed up at the first class meeting with a syllabus. And that apparently was the fairly low bar <laughs> that was required. <laughs> and I thought, well, okay, uh, I can't imagine not showing up the first class with a syllabus, but apparently that was something that was not necessarily the case in his experience. So anyway, I had that experience. I, I uh, was also um, uh, teaching um, customized courses for business and industry uh, in the uh, Williamsburg, Hampton, Newport News area. You know, we would custom design uh, writing courses, uh, professional writing courses, and you know, I would go to the workplace uh, and, and teach these courses. And uh, within very short order, I decided it was time for me to go back for a PhD. Uh, so I uh, worked on that uh, through the 90s and finished that in 97. Now, how did I get to uh, University of Connecticut? Right. 97, I really 
really, at, when I finished my PhD, I really felt, you know, I think I'd like to be at a four-year college or a university. I'd like to publish scholarship. Uh, I'd like to be able to teach upper division courses, maybe graduate courses. And so I went on the job market and was on the job market for about 10 years, applying for eight to 10 positions, tenure track positions every year, uh, without much success. At a certain point, I, uh, I went to a, a colleague and mentor of mine, Bob Skolnick, who, uh, at the College of William & Mary, who, um, and I said, I, you know, Bob, would you be willing to give me some, some career coaching here? I've you know, been applying for these jobs, uh, not been very successful. Can you tell me what's, what's going on? And he gave me a very frank assessment. He said, first of all, Tom, you've been at the community college too long. And you're competing with, with uh, younger people who uh, uh, have uh, had the opportunity to teach upper division courses and even grad courses. Uh, and he said, your, your, uh, your doctoral degree from Indiana University of Pennsylvania is neither from Indiana nor Penn. <laughs> This is like Linda Richmond. It's like, what's uh, neither Indiana nor Pennsylvania, but is both Indiana and Pennsylvania? <laughs> Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> so, <laughs> he had some other suggestions. Of course, he said, there's nothing you can do about that now. And he had some other suggestions to make, so I worked on that. Um, and I, uh, so my, a friend of mine, who was on the faculty at this point of the School of Nursing at the University of Connecticut, and whom I, he and his, uh, his uh, husband, uh, I would see uh, several times a year, said to me in, in, when we got together for Thanksgiving in, in November of 2007, he said, we have a new dean and a new strategic plan for the School of Nursing. Uh, it really raises expectations for faculty productivity with grant funding and publication. And we're not equipped for this. We're not equipped to do the writing for grant applications and for uh, the um, uh, for this kind of uh, productivity with with uh, scholarly and research publications. He said, "Is there anything you can do for us?" So I said, "Well, send me your strategic plan." So I put together a business plan in which I said, I can do the following things which will directly support each of these aspects of your strategic plan. And this is how I will do it. And uh, I sent that to the dean. She and I had a phone conversation. She made some suggestions for tweaking that a bit. And uh, I came up. Uh, in January of 2008 and interviewed with the faculty. And then she invited me to come back uh, to do a week uh, of one-on-one uh, -on -one consulting with faculty. And then in March of 2008, and then a month later, uh, offered me a contract. So it was a position that didn't exist until I told them they needed it. You wrote your own ticket, as they say. Yeah, yeah. 
That's impressive. After 10 years on the job market, just saying, hey, why don't I create a job? Yeah. This is what you guys need. You just didn't know that you needed it. You didn't know you needed it. In fact, at a certain point in in my conversations with her in December of 2007, she said, now, are you talking about a a consulting relationship uh, or a full-time faculty position? I said, oh, no, this this is going to require a full-time faculty position. And you've been, I mean, and and they said yes, and you've been able to build something there that is very unique. Um, it, it is. It this is. idea of medical humanities and... Well, that's the other piece, Alex, was that I had already had uh, begun to develop a, a, a research career in medical humanities, um, and so was able to bridge the world of writing, professional communication writing, medical humanities, nursing, within the context of of what had already been uh, in place for a number of years, the Center for Nursing Scholarship in the School of Nursing. And she uh, she had also recruited a biostatistician and some other faculty to support the work of the Center for Nursing Scholarship. So, yeah, and and then since then, I you know I've always looked for ways to branch out within the school, and I have always looked for ways to demonstrate value added both to the School of Nursing and to the University of Connecticut. I have never assumed that I would just you know always have a job. I mean, of course, I'm not tenure tracked. I'm I'm a but I'm a contingent uh, category that through our collective bargaining agreement now allows for a five-year contract with renewal expected. So it's, you know, tenure without the name. Yeah, I mean, there are similar types of positions in a lot of universities, which are essentially quasi-tenure, right? Um, yeah. Five-year contracts that they're pro- they're expected to be renewed. It's kind of like that. Yeah, yeah. I think that I think it's very interesting what you said about um, narrative and value added. Which grant writing is about creating a narrative that proves value added, right? Absolutely. You're telling a story, and Absolutely. I think that's a really interesting continuity through all the things that you've mentioned is the uh, pastoral work, um, literature, teaching, nursing. Each of these things can involve like telling a story or, or narrative. And I'm wondering, do you, how do you see that like thread running through all of this different type of work that you've done? Oh, absolutely. And so um, it, it may interest you to know that my colleague, Juliet Shellman, who uh, uses um, uh, life story in her work with uh, a geriatric population and who did her dissertation research on the efficacy of using life story innovations has now moved a, a national or an international center from the University of Wisconsin Superior to the University of Connecticut the International Center for Life Story Innovations and Practice. Uh, she's created a, um, a, uh, a graduate certificate in life story innovations and practice. And my pro- 
project this summer is to prepare one of the courses for that certificate in life story innovations and practice. Gosh, uh, that sounds so fascinating. It must be yeah. so interesting to put together a syllabus for something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has been. And, you know, in in some, well, when I remember in 2008 when I was here for that one week in March uh, of 2008 to do the consulting, which was kind of my dress rehearsal for this job. I remember saying to one of my friends uh, uh, who had uh, helped recruit me here, I said, you know, and this was toward the end of the week, I feel as though I have spent my entire life preparing for this job. You know, it's very strange. I mean, how many of us have the privilege and the gift of being able to say that? Being able to say that I feel that I have prepared my entire life so, you know, for example, one of the things I've done for the last two years and I'll do this year is I've been the director of our uh, residential uh, learning community for first year and second year nursing students. It's called Nursing House. It's on one floor of one of our dorms. And, you know, it's I provide for them what the Brits uh, call pastoral care. Uh, the Brits call it pastoral care, even though it has no, uh, you know, it's, it's an utterly sec- secular role. But I am, I, I tell the students in the community, in the nursing house community, think of me as your Yukon uncle. You know, I am here to look after you, to advocate for you, to uh, listen to you. Uh, so it is a very pastoral role. I'm so glad that you've said that because that's kind of where I wanted to bring the conversation um, to. I mean, I see my own role as a professor, as a teacher, as a mentor, as as being an advocate, uh, a bulldog for the students, uh, someone they can talk to. I mean, ideally, this is what I would wish to do. And I was just, we've covered so much in this conversation. I, I was kind of wondering... From your early work um, as a priest to being a professor, like, how are those things similar or different? Well, I think in many respects they are more similar uh, than different. Uh, the object of study may have changed slightly. The methods may have changed slightly. The income has changed considerably. <laughs> the context has changed. But, you know, this notion that you are nurturing, the notion that you are taking people where they are, the notion that you are meeting people in both their strengths and their vulnerabilities, and also the, the fundamental understanding of our common humanity and that I think has been central you know that was central to my experience as a priest you know there's that wonderful description that Emerson has of the true preacher and I, I'm trying to remember if it's in self-reliance or the divinity school address I think it's in the divinity school address uh, and I don't know if you remember this he, he just he, he says, um, 
he says, I, I once went uh, to hear a sermon uh, that almost made me promise I would never return to church again. All around us, outside, the snow was falling uh, in this, this beautiful constellation of, of snowflake stars. But inside uh, was a man who, who, who must have loved, who must have hated, who must have been sad, but there was not a hint of his life or his, uh, his, his experience. Uh, he said, uh, Emerson says, outside the snow was real, but inside the preacher merely spectral. He said, this is the mark of a true preacher, that he passes his life. How does he say it? He, 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 I, I'm, I'm going to screw up the, 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 the quotation, but anyway. Don't worry, uh, we'll fix it in post. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> um, the mark of the true teach, preacher is that he deals out his life, life passed through the fire of thought. Life passed through the fire of thought. Wonderful phrase. I got that one right. Life passed through the fire deals out his life, life passed through the fire of thought. And that's what I tried to do in my own preaching, was to preach from my own humanity, my own vulnerability. And, you know, I tried to do that in teaching as well. So, for example, I never asked students to do anything that I can't do, or I had trouble doing. Like, when teaching a literature course, remembering the plots of things. <laughs> I've never been, every time I read a play or go see a movie, what like, oh, yeah, I forgot that happened. And uh, when I'm teaching, uh, I, uh, I, I, you know, I've, for example, when I assign students different kinds of writing assignments, I write the assignment myself both as an exemplar and also to allow me to experience, you know, what are the, um, what are the complications in this, this writing assignment? You know, where might they get into trouble so that I know what it's, what it's, what it's like. Ultimately, uh, students are not very different from faculty. We are all very skilled at cost-benefit analysis. Students ask, do I need to come to class? Faculty ask, do I need to come to this meeting? True. Students ask if I have to come to class, do I have to be prepared for this class? Student faculty ask, well, if I have to come to this meeting, do I have to be prepared for this meeting? If I have to be prepared for this class, students ask, do I have, how prepared do I need to be? The faculty ask, well, okay, if I've got to come somewhat prepared, how prepared do I need to be? And then, of course, ultimately, both students and faculty share in common a habit of uh, not reading and following the instructions and not turning stuff in on time. I understand that, and I understand that's where students are as well. Life is a test that none of us studied for, right? Um, right. It's and like that... Most of us don't do particularly well. No. Um, it's like that dream 
that I think most academics have definitely had where they like were enrolled in a course or didn't know they were and they show up on the final day and they have to take the exam and they haven't been there the whole semester. That's life. Um, I think that what you said about teaching is so um, apt. Um, there's a film that I really like called Wonder Boys um, that has um, Michael Douglas and Tobey Maguire um, in it. And it's about this... It's it's based on the Shabon novel, yes, yeah, exactly. Which is a really great novel as well. Um, but the character Grady Tripp, who's like a creative writing professor at this universe, vaguely defined university in uh, Pittsburgh, but I think it's either supposed to be Carnegie Mellon or Pitt, right? Where he, Michael Shabon <laughs> Also, his book The Mysteries of Pittsburgh is fantastic. If it was his first book, I think you would really enjoy it. Anyway, what Grady Tripp says about teaching writing to these students who are basically like in an MFA program um, is that some of them are going to get it, some of them are going to do it, some of them are not, some of them won't get there. My job is to try to help them get from point A to point B, basically. Um, I'm, my job is to help the ones who are going to make it and help the ones who are not going to make it and see how it all shakes out that's not exactly how he says it but you know what i mean i see that as kind of what our jobs are like yeah and, and for, for a number of years when i first was at the university of connecticut um uh we had uh, what was called the institute for teaching and learning and the uh, uh associate director was Catherine ross who is now doing that same kind of work at a at a, uh, a university in New York? You may be familiar with um, a place called Columbia. You've heard of it? I think I've heard of it. Yeah, it's, it's uptown. Uh, uptown somewhere. Anyway, Catherine used to say to us in in workshops for uh, uh, for faculty. We teach the students we have, not the students whom we think we deserve to have. You go to war with the army you have. Again. Exactly. I think that um, this all comes together so well. Um, what you've said about narrative and storytelling um, really uh, maps on to what you were talking about earlier about ecumenism. Like, mm -hmm. we can have doctrinal like battles till the cows come home about this little nitty gritty nettlesome point of theology. But right. what I think good pastors, what good priests, what good teachers and other communicators do is to uh, tell stories that make life, the chaos of life intelligible. And they also um, transcend particular human context to like the stories that are in the, the Torah, the Bible, the Quran, they're different in their exact details, but we, we tell these stories because there's something more transcendent that we share. And um, it's kind of a way of saying we have more in common than we have like not in common. Um, and I think that's what a really good storyteller or communicator is able to do, whether they're at a pulpit or in a classroom or in a hospital. So yeah. I just, I really appreciate so much um, that you took all this time to, to talk with us about um, your life and your work. Um, there's so much more to say about it, but um, I just want and to say... we could keep on saying it, couldn't we, between the two of us? Well, or, or to the point, 
you could just occasionally ask me more questions and I'll yammer on forever. But uh, this has been great, Alex. Yeah, it's been um, really wonderful. It's been yeah, very profound. Good. good. I hope it's helpful to you uh, and your work. And uh, let me know uh, uh, how you use it. So that was our interview with Thomas Lawrence Long, a very interesting scholar, a former priest, a teacher, a writer, researcher, and a mover of things. What we're trying to do here is to sort of open up and expand what the concept of care is. Um, we think of uh, you know taking care of of a child or an elderly parent, or um, someone uh, who has an illness or a disability, that we think of that as what care is, which it is. But, you know, there are other ways in which this kind of affective labor is expressed and done. Um, you know, maybe, like, care um, sub like is, is, is embodied in the writing and research and teaching that people do. It, it means something and it's important. So I really appreciate Tom Long from the University of Connecticut talking with us and we will see you the next time, hopefully. Hopefully.